And we're live. Welcome back, everybody, to a new episode of the Wheelie Podcast. This is actually the last episode of the year, so we are very excited about it. As usual, I'm your host, Mike Atoll, and I'm joined by Seth Weintraub. How's it going, Seth? I'm good. And we have so many cool stories because we're doing a rundown of the biggest stories of the year across mostly the electric bike space, but also some other light electric vehicles. Uh, All sorts of interesting things from e-bike companies going bust and abandoning their bikes to um, stealthy new electric bikes with provocative names, collaborations between e-bike companies and motorcycle companies, tiny electric trucks that are barely considered trucks, and just about everything in between. So uh, where are we going to start off today, Seth? All right. This one is about uh, Bolt Mobility abandoning their electric bikes all over U.S. cities, and here's what happened to them. So this was an interesting one because we've heard of companies that do this sort of shared mobility going bust before, but we've never seen them just sort of like pack it in and leave their stuff all over the streets. Like normally it's like I'm taking my ball and going home, but they just went home and and left their bikes and scooters all over in a number of cities. And it was a big scramble in the beginning. We originally covered the story and that one was pretty big by itself when we just covered, you know, what happened there are these bikes that are just scattered over cities now and Bolt doesn't exist. And then uh, we heard from the company that actually made these e-bikes. They reached out to us and said like, hey, by the way, like we're actually the OEM and uh, that was Element LEV. And so they told us that they were going around and basically trying to help each of these cities individually figure out what they could do with all of these abandoned e-bikes. The issue is that for all the shared mobility, these things are locked. So You would normally need the Bolt app to be able to rent them by the minute and that sort of thing. And when Bolt went bust, cities couldn't really do anything. It was just like bricked hardware, basically. So Element LEV had to go to each city and they helped them either set up uh, city-run bike shares or at least unlock the bikes so they could be used for other things or, you know, sold off as a functional e-bike at auction instead of a, you know, piece of essentially large rolling e-waste, which is what they had turned into for a period there. And there was this fascinating case of a company that didn't really have to do this. I mean, like they provided the bikes and at that point their sort of obligation was over, but they stepped up to try and do something good to help out when the products that they had sold to another company ended up sort of going to waste. So this was like a a really cool sort of feel good story almost that in the beginning looked like it was going to be a big problem, but ultimately had sort of a happy ending. Now, it wasn't possible in all of these cases to sort of save the bikes. Each city had to figure out what to do on their own because they were each left with a unique mess by this whole thing. But it certainly was, uh, you know, a new and interesting case of what happens when one of these big companies goes bust. And I hope it's not foreshadowing what could happen in the future because there are several other of these shared mobility companies, especially big ones like Bird, that aren't necessarily on the most sound financial footing right now so it does give me a little bit of worry yeah and it's kind of surprising because there's a lot of value still in those bikes you would think uh even you know a bankruptcy court or something you know whoever's liquidating would say hey there's some value here let's let's either unlock them or send a pickup truck to go pick them up or do whatever it's it's just weird that you know the ceo of the company was just like i'm out of here you know, like, just yeah, done. 
Absolutely. I uh, mean, each of these you have to assume is worth, you know, at least a thousand bucks or so. I mean, that's like a cheapy bike these days. And if you've got a thousand of them out there, which that's probably a conservative guess, you're talking about over a million dollars of hardware just sitting on the street. Yeah. And that's at, you know, liquidation prices. These are more expensive to buy. These are heavy duty bikes built for, you know, lots of uh, ride time, a lot of, a lot of sharing, a lot of, you know, clicking in and clicking out. So uh, it is very strange to see like this particular scenario. And and do we even like figure out what happened to like the CEO of the company or, you know, whoever was leading the company, like were they dead or in jail or something? I'm not sure anything ever happened. Um, I, I haven't heard of anything actually. I don't know where the, you know, the company's founders went. Hopefully they're not onto another startup at this point, but uh, unfortunately these guys tend to land on their feet. But right. It, it would be fascinating to figure out what happened. I imagine they're probably laying low for a while. Right. Uh, over the handlebars, so to speak. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to uh, some, you know, obviously in the backdrop of everything going on in 2022, it was the big Ukraine uh, war thing. And uh, of course, e-bikes took part in that. Ukraine is now using these 200 mile range electric bikes with NLAW rockets to take out Russian tanks. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the uh, war in Ukraine was a well, probably one of the biggest stories of 2022, if not the biggest, but I never really expected that would spill over into our coverage because we didn't feel that, you know, connected to it until we learned this fascinating story that uh, Delfast, an electric bike company that is based in Ukraine, started outfitting their bikes to actually carry these NLAW rockets, which are basically designed to take out tanks and other heavily armored vehicles. And so the idea is that soldiers could get into position to fire these things quickly and fairly quietly on an e-bike so that they're not, you know, exposing their position. They can obviously carry this big, like, you know, 30 pound rocket with them. That's a lot easier to carry than on your back. And then they can get the heck out of there once they fired it so they're not just sitting ducks and so we we've heard of you know e-bikes being tested by armies before it's quite common to hear you know these pilot programs that sort of thing the u.s army has done it we've seen it done in uh, australia lots of places in europe but we rarely actually see them used in actual combat and so this is one of the first times i think that i know of that we've actually seen in real time e-bikes or electric motorcycles being used for actual combat missions and I couldn't think of a better case than in supporting the brave uh, Ukrainian defenders. I mean, this is, you know, I would rather not cover war at all, but if I have to, then this is a good way to be doing it at least. Yeah. And, you know, I guess the bigger picture thing is like, well, you know, if these things are successful in what they're doing, maybe these replace some of the, you know, gas powered vehicles that armies use all over the world. Uh, and, you know, like armies are sadly part of life, but theoretically some electric bikes might uh, or motorcycles might replace some of the gas powered vehicles that armies build and, and, you know, stockpile and run training things on. So theoretically this could be a, a bigger thing or a good thing for the wider world in terms of, you know, switching uh, army vehicles over to electric. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's going to start happening uh, a lot quicker than we realize, too, because there are actually a lot of tactical advantages here as well. I mean, it's not just that these things are quieter, which, of course, is quite helpful in these situations. 
but also they don't have the big heat signature that um, ATVs that. and yeah. yeah. So you can you know get into position without even being picked up by um, drones with uh, heat sensors, which is like you know it seems like most of what war is these days is just drones. So it's it's a, a lot of advantages there. I mean, I think the one reason we haven't seen it more is really it's just the refueling issue that you know armies have gas depots everywhere and it's uh, a lot harder to refuel with a uh, electric bike if you're out in the um, the field like this. But we've also started seeing uh, solar employed in some tactical situations. Um, I'm not sure we've ever seen it in a combat situation like this, but we have seen it tested before. And so that could be an added component to this in the future. And it's it's something that I wouldn't be surprised to see more. Uh, again, I'd rather not see any of this stuff used for war. But like you said, it's an unfortunate part of life. And so uh, at least if this is going to happen, then it can go to the right people and be used in a way that's going to do as little harm to the world as possible. Right. Yeah. Uh, armies are a big, big carbon footprint thing. That would be nice to slow that down. All right. Moving on. Uh, Indian Motorcycle and Super 73 release a fast e-bike that won't need a motorcycle license. So Super 73, if you're not familiar, is basically probably the most motorcycle-like electric bike company out there. They're, I mean, they build, you know, street aesthetically. legal. Aesthetically, right. I mean, these, these are street legal e-bikes. Um, you know, you, you they fit into all the three classes. Uh, these are electric bicycles under uh, U.S. e-bike regulations. But they um, cultivate this sort of uh, culture within the uh, Super 73 fan base that's almost like a motorcycle culture. You know, you've got people really customizing their bikes You've got, uh, they also really promote safety wear. So you've got people wearing, you know, uh, crash jackets, full face helmets, which is obviously a good idea when you're riding really fast and you're, you know, popping wheelies down the middle of a road, like we often see people do on Super 73s. So uh, to me, it kind of made sense that they would partner with a motorcycle company to do some cool cross-branding stuff. And in this case, they partnered with Indian, which has its own sort of storied heritage. And we haven't seen an electric motorcycle from Indian yet, though we know that they've been playing around with the idea. And when we heard that they were partnering with Super 73, there was this thought that, you know, maybe they would be coming out with some sort of light electric motorcycle. Uh, but really, it was more of a Super 73 with Indian branding. And so what we've got is basically like a, uh, I think they call it the EFTR hooligan. And it takes a lot of the design cues from Indian uh, it also had some uh, redesigned structurally of what a Super 73 normally is. It had a lowered battery, uh, an elongated a saddle, a gold chain, all sorts of interesting little, you know, sort of easy to do uh, redesign things that weren't going to take too much re-engineering to create this uh, collaboration project. In the end, I think it looks pretty awesome. It was a bit expensive. I think it was something like uh, $4,000, which was already a pretty significant hike over a uh, traditional Super 73, but you wound up with a very nice design. And I think for people who are Indian motorcycle fans, if this gets them into the sphere of electric vehicles and electric motorbikes and, you know, helps them realize that, you know, maybe there's another way in addition to just burning gas, then that might be a nice little added cherry on top as well. In addition to just getting a pretty slick looking Super 73. What do you think of the design, Seth? Yeah, I love it. It's uh, it's totally cool. I think it'll get more people on e-bikes that maybe you know, like obviously if you're if you're you know coming from a big old 
old-fashioned, gas-guzzling, like loud Indian, <laughs> this is probably isn't your first choice unless you're getting a little old or something. Uh, but you know, it, isn't Indian owned by like uh, Polaris or something? I I feel like I think they, they are. Yeah. So I feel like they should be getting into e-bikes as well, but I guess maybe that's not not really the brand. I mean, the brand is almost uh I don't I don't know if it's a it's a derogatory at all for I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> nice bike. Uh looks looks like a ton of fun. Um and it gets more people on e-bikes. That's great. Yeah, and it would make sense because Polaris is exploring some electrics, like with their uh, electric Ranger. And there's been some talk from Polaris about electrifying other vehicles in their range. So it would fit. I mean, they're not, you know, at the front of the race for electrification, but they're also not at the end either. Weren't they using uh, zero uh, motors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, They use the, I think the entire zero powertrain so the batteries the motors the controllers uh somewhat modified they're uh i think they're liquid cooling both the motor and the controller if i'm not mistaken which zero uh traditionally just does air cooling so in some of these polaris situations they're running much slower speeds but higher power so you know you can't really rely on having like 80 mile an hour airflow over the battery to cool it off right but but they're mostly using pretty stock uh zero parts yeah yeah, so it'd be cool if they uh, maybe partnered with Zero on a. I mean, obviously the brand and the the look is a big part of the the value there. So maybe just throwing a, a Zero together with some Indian branding would be the next step. If they're not, you know, ready to jump in, both feet. All right, uh, moving on. We have oh my favorite name in bikes: the Fast Stealthy Baby Maker Two. Electric bike launched at ultra low price. Touts USA assembly in Detroit. <laughs> I I can't not laugh at this name here. The baby maker. Technically, this is the baby maker two. It's the second version of the bike. Um, it's from FLX, which are about the most like bros, like bike bros in the e-bike industry. I would say, and Gotta so it, yeah, it, it fits with their their brand. But the funny thing is they now offer a logo delete option on the bike if you don't want it to say in big letters, Baby Maker on the frame. So mm. I, I think they heard some feedback there. But um, I mean, the bike itself, like putting the name aside, is actually a really nice bike. So it's got a Gates carbon belt drive. It's got Magura hydraulic disc brakes, which are some of the nicest brakes in the bike industry. Like they have no place being on this bike. They're like way too nice for it. Um, it's got a, I believe it's a torque sensor. Now I'm, I've seen so many bikes recently. I, I think it has a torque sensor. I'll have to double check on that. Um, but it is a really nice setup. The, the one sort of downside is that it's a bit lower power. Uh, it's got a smaller motor and smaller battery because it's a really lightweight bike. But I mean, this is a, a pedal assist bike designed for people who are into cycling already. This isn't you know, like a Super 73 we just looked at, this is very much like a lightweight, fast road bike. So it's it's kind of fitting for it to be a little bit lower power because you're going to be pedaling as well. Obviously, no throttle on a pedal assist bike. So it, it fits there. Um, the other interesting mm-hmm. piece about this one that I think um, really caught people's eye was that uh, FLX was saying that they're building these in Detroit. 
they've they released a few videos showing a what looks like a warehouse in Detroit and a bunch of parts. But I, I still have some questions about how much is is built there and how much is it like final assembly where the bikes come in and like a few things are added because they haven't really uh, they haven't shown like you know start to finish videos and it's it hasn't been as transparent as I would like to really see what's going on there in Detroit. But there is at least some sort of operation there in terms of putting these bikes together, which is at least a step up from what most e-bike companies do, which is they have the bikes built overseas. They come in completely in a box and they're actually never touched stateside by anyone in the company. They just go into a fulfillment center and get sent straight to customers who order them online. So, you know, you're getting a bike that the last quality check was done 8,000 miles away. So it is nice that there's some sort of final something going on in Detroit, though I do have questions as to exactly what it is. Do you know where in Detroit? I think we, we go there quite often. Maybe we can go uh, pop in. And, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that would be great. Uh, you'd be the first like inside footage there. I don't know where it is, but I'll absolutely look it up because that would be a really cool one if you could get a tour of their facility there. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, so love the, love. I mean, the price. It started out at... Um, 1222 i mean that's that's insane for i mean the brakes alone probably cost close to that much um <laughs> it's and you know with the gates drive uh and a nice frame um i love this this idea you actually get some exercise as well um but then they after the promotion it's up to 2222 yeah um, and is that what the current price is um, they had some pretty good sales going over the holiday season. I think they've probably ended after Christmas, though. Um, I, I did notice a lot of the like Black Friday through Christmas sales are still going until the end of the year. So if anyone didn't get an e-bike for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever holiday you celebrate and you still want one, you should check because a lot of the companies still have their sales going. But I, I think these were discounted decently well over the the holiday period uh, i hope they're not back up to that twenty two hundred dollar price because it's it's a bit high for what you're getting it is a very nice bike mind you but um you know if when you talk about things like bang for buck in terms of power in terms of range that sort of thing it doesn't quite stack up though of course it's it's hard to compare this bike to something that's designed for high power riding yeah you know, I, I think if I was going to build something like this, I would probably go with like, uh, I think Ride One Up um, has kind of a build that I would like with a, um, with a Rosa the motor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, that's the uh, the Prodigy, I think. Yeah. The Prodigy. Yeah. Um, because with, uh, and uh, Carl in San Diego looked it up, Baby Maker 2 has a cadence sensor, not a torque sensor. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that would be without a, without a throttle and without a torque sensor this is going to probably be a little jerky on the uh the starts and stops of the electric assist probably works fine uh i'm sure it's great we've heard good things but uh you know just for a smoother start and stop i would prefer to get like a mid drive with that i mean you've already got a belt drive on there so uh and then maybe you could even throw in a few gears in the back if you have a mid drive so yeah pretty good bike but maybe not my my you know absolute ultimate there um all right moving on uh another u.s state as electric bike subsidy this time with up to 1700 dollars rebate i'm really excited about this trends of cities and states picking up where the federal government sort of dropped the ball with creating a 
national electric bike subsidy or rebate or tax credit or any way to make e-bikes cheaper. Uh, in this case, it was Oregon who created a, a statewide uh, e-bike incentive. And so basically what it does is it creates a rebate. I think it's point of sale even um, to be able to reduce the price significantly on electric bikes up to $1,700. This is something we've seen in multiple places. Vermont has also done this. Uh, Denver might have one of the most famous ones because they started earlier in 2022. I want to say like March, April, May, something like that. So that's been going on for many months. There's actually, they had to replenish the funds because it was so popular that um, what they thought would last for about three years in terms of funding was exhausted quite quickly. And so it just shows another great example of states who believe in the power of alternative transportation to actually replace cars, to um, you know reduce emissions, to help people live a healthier lifestyle, and basically see that this isn't just about um, you know, promoting something for the sake of greenness. It's about actually seeing a likely return on investment. You know, the, this isn't being done out of the, the goodness of their hearts. You know, Oregon taxpayers aren't just funding e-bikes because it sounds like a nice green idea. This is something that they actually expect to help the state and to be a, a positive uh, return on investment. You know, this means that it's uh, reduced use on roads. It's reduced um, uh, taxpayer-funded um, healthcare. It's um, helping people reach their uh, places of employment. It's helping people avoid uh, crowded public transportation where people are worried about getting sick or that sort of thing. I mean, there are just so many of these ancillary benefits of personal electric transportation that I think so many states are now seeing that this is a good idea. And, you know, Oregon is the most recent and theirs is a quite generous program but we're seeing it more often. And I really think this is going to be a trend over the next year. Uh, another interesting little piece of this is that we've seen that many of these incentives actually provide a higher incentive for cargo bikes versus other types of electric bikes. And I think that a big part of that is they want to push people towards using these for utility and for replacing car trips, as opposed to just getting like, you know, an electric mountain bike, that'll be fun on trails. Not that there isn't a benefit to that. There's certainly the health benefit, but I think a big goal of this is really reducing car use, um, removing the the traffic from the roads, reducing emissions, that sort of thing. And so it's it's exciting to see this in just so many places now. And it really feels like a wave that's picking up momentum, in my opinion. I agree. It's a great idea. I, the things. Um, so we have a new feature called Top Comments, where top comments get uh, put into the article. So make sure you comment and get in there. But um Max makes a good point saying, you know, this should probably apply to regular bikes as well. My concern is that, you know, somebody gets this big uh, $1,200 discount and then just goes and sells it in some other state or some other municipality. Um, so you got to curb that. And I don't know exactly how you do that, but maybe, I mean, you know, as a selling point, you can say like uh, free electricity for life. So we give you, you know, $40 off your electric bill for, you know, two years or whatever, um, rather than, you know, the, the big discount on the purchase price. Therefore, you know, people aren't as likely to say, Hey, you know, friend in Washington across the border from, you know, <laughs> like, why don't you, you said you're going to get an e-bike. I will buy one here, get it and give it to you. 
and you know the twelve hundred dollars goes away. That's another thing that would be kind of nice about a nationwide thing is, you know, theoretically we're not going to be trading bikes with people overseas, so um, that would be a nice uh, way to get the federal money or some of that infrastructure bill money. Um, and and you get so much bang for your buck. You know, if you, if you put a couple hundred or a thousand dollars into an e-bike, that's usually covering more than half of the cost of something that, you know, people can use every day that uh, doesn't take up a lot of road space. Um, obviously cleans up cities pretty quickly. Uh, no, no pollution or anything like that. So all good things, but like, you know, we haven't figured out the perfect uh, mix of, you know, how to do it right yet. And I think once you have a better, you know, plan, like addressing all these things and, and, you know, I like Max's comment about like pedal bikes too. Pedal bikes should be in on it for sure. Uh, acoustic bikes, as we like to call them. <laughs> um, so I, I agree. I think this is a great thing. I think we just need to kind of tune it up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I always go back and forth on the pedal bike thing because it's not that I want to like discriminate against them. Obviously, that's great. In some ways, pedal bikes are even better because, you know, you're you're burning more calories yourself. It's even better for fitness. But at the same time, like, a, you know, a really nice pedal bike could be like five, 600 bucks. But, you know, you know, we're talking like, you know, full suspension, everything. But a good e-bike just starts at like, you know, 1200 1400 bucks so you know the price difference here i think that's why e-bikes have really been targeted with these um incentives over over pedal bikes and so it's i always go back and forth there because it's like you know i want to make sure that people can afford the one that they're actually going to use but at the same time i don't want to discriminate against people that are using a great option which is a pedal bike well just before uh people comment uh acoustic bikes go way up to you know thousands and even ten thousand dollars for you know really nice ones, but yes, I agree a hundred percent. Yeah, those those bikes are kind of rare, and if, frankly, if you're looking at those, you probably don't need an incentive or a rebate. There you go. I mean, I guess it shows what kind of bikes I would consider buying. If to me, a really right. nice pedal bike is six hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, we have a a couple downhill bikes in uh, Vermont, and uh, they retail for like two thousand. We got them used though, so save some money. Nice. All right. Uh, moving on. Harley Davidson is selling out its newest electric motorcycle in 18 minutes. Highlights pent up demand. I am super pumped for this one. This is the uh, Livewire S2 Del Mar. It's a long name. It's Harley Davidson's electric motorcycle brand. And of all the upcoming electric motorcycles, I think this is probably the one I'm most excited for. It's actually the first model that's being uh, released under the Livewire badge. The uh, original Harley-Davidson Livewire that was released by Harley was sort of passed off to Livewire when the company developed uh, this new sub-brand. And so the S2 is really like the first model that's coming out that's been really developed under, under Livewire. And the goal of this model is to hopefully make this operation profitable or move it in that direction. When the Livewire 1 was released originally as the Harley-Davidson Livewire, it was a $30,000 motorcycle. It was re-released under Livewire as a, I want to say, $22,500 or $23,000 motorcycle. So significantly lower. 
most people uh, believe that was either at cost or perhaps even uh, a losing, like a lost leader for for Harley to just get more market share and buy some time to bring this bike out. But with this bike, which is going to be around sixteen and a half to seventeen thousand dollars, Livewire is really hoping to actually start penetrating the market. Uh, actually start hopefully turning a profit on these things and really demonstrate what they can do with a totally new platform. And it's already a positive indication that when they launched this thing, it uh, the original launch, uh, launch edition sold out in 18 minutes. I was covering the story while it was like, you know, while they were doing the launch and I couldn't even reserve one because they were gone by the time I was done covering the live launch itself. So that's how quickly these things went. Now, there are only 100 in the launch series. So, you know, that means they sold 100 bikes in 18 minutes. You know, maybe if they had had 200, it would have taken a lot longer or it would have been, you know, 25 minutes. It's hard to say how many bikes they've reserved from the follow-ons that are not the launch edition, but it does show that people were lining up immediately to get these new bikes. And I think that it, it really answers the question of whether there's a future here because when Harley Davidson spun off that Livewire brand, some people saw it as like a Hail Mary, like, okay, it's, it's not working under Harley Davidson. Let's try something else and see if we can save this thing. And there's been just so much excitement for this upcoming model that I I really think that this isn't, uh, I mean, if it was a Hail Mary pass, then it was caught. And I think that there's, you know, definite, uh, definite legs here because there's a lot of excitement around this bike. I tested it myself and it was a super nice ride. And so for uh, $16,000, $17,000, now you're getting into the territory that people can be like, yeah, all right, I think I, I can afford that. This isn't a, a twenty-five dollars or $30,000 bike anymore. That's that's the way I see it. Yeah, and it looks like super cool. Like I feel like that's kind of uh, Harley's thing here with Livewire. Both of their bikes look really nice. Um but to get to profitability, they gotta kind of get to scale. Uh, a lot more people on on these things, and I wonder, like, you know, this is just me personally, but I wonder if um, having to take the motorcycle riding test on a um, internal combustion geared clutch, everything uh, motorcycle is a hindrance in getting these, in getting more people on these bikes. Um, if I, you know, if I had to take the test on a zero or a Harley, I think I would be pretty open to getting a motorcycle license, but just having to practice on a internal combustion motor, um, motorcycle is kind of like, eh, I I can pass. I'll just, you know, get a fast, uh, e-bike and be happy. So what do you think about that? Is that something that, uh, we'll see in the near future? I mean, I, I 100% agree. I think you've hit the nail on the head there that it's it's really an obstacle for a lot of people that this piques their interest because it's, you know, if they're into the live wire because of the electric part, that they're not, you know, like Harley fanboys that are continuing with the next new thing, which I don't think many of them are, then to say, oh, I love this thing. I want to get an electric motorcycle and then find out, wait, I have to learn how to drive a gas motorcycle, spend like days on this thing in a parking lot and then hopefully master a skill in two days that I will never use again. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. So I, I think that as soon as states can wake up to that and start running their own DMV programs with uh, electric motorcycles, then it's really going to help boost this. There is the, um, I think the most common 
licensing program or, or rider training program is the uh, MSF, the Motorcycle Safety Foundation, I think it is. Uh, it's the one that I did uh, when I got my motorcycle license. It was developed in California, but the state of California stopped using it because I guess they, they didn't like it anymore for its shortcomings. And so perhaps they can be a uh, leader in bringing in electric motorcycles as a alternative option for taking these tests. I know that Zero has done sort of private events before at um, like uh, motorcycle shows where they'll bring their FX, which was their lowest power sort of entry-level bike and they'll detune it and they'll let people ride it around and sort of give them a like, you know, Fisher Price, my first motorcycle lesson kind of thing on a, you know, detuned already low power electric motorcycle. And it's a great way to get people who have just never been on a motorcycle start rolling. And, you know, you don't have to overcome that idea of like, you know, what is a clutch? What is the friction zone? How do I shift gears with my toes? That sort of thing. And, you know, it's, it seems like, you know, until the first state does it and creates some program to do licensing, that it's some unsurmountable California. Yeah, I, I could certainly see California being the first to do it. Yeah, or maybe the maybe the idea is like, all right, let's just create a new classification where you don't have to, you know, learn about clutches and gears, and and we just have the electric motorcycle license, and you know, basically, you, you take the test on an electric motorcycle, and you don't have to learn about the old jalopies running around. Uh, I feel like that would at some point make a lot of sense. Maybe yeah, not right now, but once these get to kind of more critical mass. Yeah, it'd be like some countries you can take a, uh, a car driving uh, test on either a, a standard manual transmission or an automatic, and it'll say on your license which one you took and so which oh, yeah. cars you're allowed to drive. So it's sort of like that model where if you do your test on a certain type of motorcycle, you know, electric or gas, then you're, you know, certified to operate that type of motorcycle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And that, that's a good uh, equivalency because I know uh, people who can't drive stick, it's not like they can just pick it up. It's like a whole other like, brain piece that they have to learn. Um, you know, when, Whenever my wife and I travel to Europe, I'm always the one driving because I'm the one who knows how to drive a stick. It's not like she's just going to pick it up. Like it would, you know if if like i passed out she wouldn't be able to drive any you know it's 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 not like you would know or you can just pick up something like, like that yeah absolutely it's a, a certainly learned skill yeah all right uh moving on uh we're gonna go to the rivet anthem uh unveiled as a revolutionary new affordable electric motorcycle in the u.s this is another really exciting one because it's just so different in so many ways There are a number of commuter electric motorcycles coming out and a commuter bike. uh, There's not like a real definition of that. I consider them to be these uh, motorcycles that can reach highway speeds, but not that much higher. They're usually like, you know, 70, 75 mile an hour speed limits. Um, They have modest ranges. For example, uh, the Rivet, it can do 75 miles an hour. Its range with a four kilowatt hour battery is not going to be great on the highway. But in terms of, you know, city, suburban commuting, you'll probably get a a decent 45, 50 miles out of it from the highway that might drop to like 30, 35. But these are bikes that you could, you know, take a few miles on the highway as part of a commute, maybe go from the suburbs into the city, um, taking a highway there and then taking the surface streets in the city, that sort of thing. 
And so of this new wave of commuter electric motorcycles, this one is just so innovative. I mean, it starts from the way it's designed. It doesn't have a typical frame, like, you know, almost every other motorcycle out there has some sort of tubular frame, but this one uses folded, uh, I believe it's stainless actually, to create a, a really lightweight, almost aircraft style frame. On top of that, there is a adjustable height seats. So there's an actuator that actually moves the seat up and down by about four inches. So you can choose your seat height. And if multiple people use a bike, you can have one that fits uh, a few different riders and it even works while you're riding. So for example, you can have a higher seat, make it a little more comfortable while you're moving. And when you come to a stop, you can just drop the seat down so that you can flat foot it at a red light. Uh, it also has a removable battery, which uh, we've heard about, you know, electric motorcycles with movable batteries like the MetaCycle that unfortunately didn't really deliver in the end that you need like tools and a few minutes to take it out. This one, actually, there's like a big latch. You unlatch it, the battery sort of cantilevers down onto these wheels there, and then you can roll it along like a kind of like a carry-on luggage or something. So uh, it's like 65 pounds. So it's good that they built some wheels into it. Um, but there's just, there's so many cool things about the way this bike is built and designed that it, it makes me really excited for when it comes out. It's what I would call uh, modestly priced at $7,800. And so that feels like pretty good for the specs. Obviously you could get a faster gas powered motorcycle that goes further for less money, but like that ship has sailed for a lot of people and they're looking for a nice, easy to use electric motorcycle. You know, we talked about shifting and stuff with an electric motorcycle. You just don't need that. It's effectively an automatic transmission and that there's no transmission or, you know, it's a single speed. So you just don't have to worry about shifting. It's easy to use. It functions basically like a, a powerful electric bike. If you can ride a super 73, you can ride this thing. It's basically the same functionality, just a little more powerful and uh, significantly more fun in, in my opinion, but it's a, a really cool design and, and something that I think is going to be really attractive when these come to market. They've already pre-sold a lot of these. Um, I don't think they've released actual numbers yet. They're, they're a pretty new company. So most of these electric motorcycle startups keep those numbers uh, pretty close to the vest so that they, you know, protect their, uh, um, their business intel and whatever, but it seems like a pretty popular model that people are getting behind. And um you know, it probably really only competes right now with the MetaCycle from Saunders as those are the two upcoming um, sort of commuter level motorcycles like this. There's another one coming from CSC out in California. That one's probably not going to be around until next spring, though technically the, the Rivet doesn't actually come out until next summer anyway. So maybe it gets beaten by CSC. But either way, I can see why this was one of the most popular stories of the year, because it's just such a different answer to the question of how do you build an electric motorcycle for this type of commuter use, you know, not a sport bike, not a tour bike, but something for people that want to go to, to work and back every day and have something that's still kind of fun on the weekends. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, for the people who don't have like a, you know, have street parking or, or don't have an easy charging option, the removable, ba removable battery really, like it really opens up a lot of uh, doors that, you know, if you don't, if you don't have your own house, if you don't have your own garage, um, taking the battery off every day and, you know, also for security, um, it's really nice to have that. I'm, I'm curious though, like, you know, if we look at the bike, you know, I'll go back to a, a portion where we were actually, so the bike itself, is that pivot point 
like does the battery uh, also move with the suspension or is it because it seems like it's kind of like two parts of the bike yeah the the battery is rigid with the main frame okay. so the pivots okay. sort of like behind where my calf is um got it yeah though yeah. um they did say they're going to redesign the battery latch because i don't know if you can tell in some of the shots there you can almost see the battery sort of shaking up and down like a tiny bit so they did say that they're this is a prototype by the way so they're redesigning the battery latch to make it a little stiffer but it's it's meant to not move <laughs> Yeah, it looks like a fun bike. And I, I like the idea of like, all right, this is a commuter first bike. Uh, we're going to kind of build it for that. And of course, you can take it, you know, out on the weekends and do some fun riding. But like, you know, this is built to be a commuter bike first. And, um, you know, and, you know, while it's more expensive than a gas powered bike, it offers, you know, a lot easier to ride, a lot less vibration, a lot quieter. Um, and, you know, you you do have to go to a gas station with a, a gas bike. This might be a little bit easier to just charge up at your garage every night or, you know, take it up to your apartment and charge it. So I really like this thing. I, I wish I could uh, get a motorcycle license easier <laughs> and give it a try. I feel like with all of the cool bikes, you're going to like accidentally be forced to get a motorcycle license one of these days. I know. I know. Uh, we'll see if I, that, that ever happens. I also have to run it by the boss, you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, on from motorcycles to last year, I bought a $2,000 electric mini pickup truck from China. Here's how it's holding up. I think this is one of the electric readers all time favorites here. Yeah, th this is fun. Um, so this is my mini truck from China. It's basically like a uh, approximately like five eighths scale pickup truck. Uh, it's built on what feels like kind of a large lawn tractor frame and it it's functionally like a little truck. I mean, it's got a two seater cab. It's got a uh, pickup truck bed in the back. It actually has a hydraulic Ram like you can see here. So uh, it can tilt up and turn into a dump truck. I keep it at my parents' ranch cause they have about 10 acres and we use it all over for just basically uh, off-road, um, like farm type tasks. So it's uh, hauling topsoil. It's doing uh, lawn waste. Um, when they're building things, it's moving construction material. They've got a, a long private driveway out to the public roads. So they use it like once a week to drive the uh, trash cans out to the public road where they get picked up instead of having to like, you know, turn on a, their van and, and pull, you know, trash cans down the road with a, uh, with a gas powered vehicle. So it's, you know, a super useful little thing, even though a lot of people think it's like a glorified golf cart. But to me, and, and what was really the main part of the story was how surprised I was at just how well it's held up. A lot of people, when I first shared this about a year ago, and I, you know, showed a bunch of pictures and some videos of the truck when it first arrived, people were like, oh, that's cute, but it's going to start falling apart, you know, in a few months. Someone said it's it's a good thing it has a bed and back so you can pick up all the parts that keep falling off of it. <laughs> And uh, I, I get where that's coming from, but I got to say, I don't think one thing has broken on it yet. The only things that have actually broken have been accidents where like once we backed it up into the um, like uh, burn pile and broke one of the reflectors, uh, my dad drove it under a tree with uh, and one of the branches caught one of the spotlights on top. So like pulled it off, but we just had to bolt it back on, but nothing has broken through any fault of itself. It's, it's held up in incredibly well. 
there's almost no rust on the thing. Um, and we've, you know, used it hard. Like it's a work truck. It gets used all around the property. It's not street legal. So it basically stays all over this ranch. And if anything, that's almost harder on it because there aren't any roads here. It's just driving over like rutted out pasture land all day. And so the thing's bouncing around. If something was going to shake out, like it would have shook out by now. So I, I couldn't be more happy with how well this thing is held up. And I'm more surprised than anybody because, you know, I thought it would be a fun adventure and, you know, I hope it would last a while, but I just can't believe how well the thing is held up. Yeah. And uh, we all want to know when we're going to do a group buy. (laughs) Yeah. So I've heard from other people that were inspired by this, that it's becoming trickier to actually get these in. I've heard from people that bought from the same vendor I did and they actually got stuck in customs and, and weren't allowed in. And it's, it's a tricky issue here because I brought it in as an off-road vehicle and I had to sign something saying, you know, this is not intended for road use and I will not be using it on the road because it's not a, a street legal mini truck. And the, um, customs and border patrol, they, they can stop incoming vehicles that are um, sort of destined for off-road use if it looks like they could or would be intended to be used on-road. So for example, this thing has um, turn signals. It has a full light package. Like it's it's sort of designed for road use wherever it's made. In this case, it's made in China. Um, and so theoretically, CBP can say like, you know, I know you say you're going to use this off-road, but it's built for on-road use. And so we're not going to allow it in. And it's there. Um, you know, right to do that, I guess, the way the law is written. So I sort of got lucky that they didn't have a problem with it when I brought it in. But now these are becoming more popular and people are sort of starting to run into these kinds of issues. Yeah, I wonder if, I wonder what you could do to kind of lower the uh, odds of it getting picked up. I mean, the fact that it says Explorer on the front probably doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, th- this thing is covered in copyright infringement. The uh, spotlights on top... They used to say Jeep on them, but you can see where before they were like shipped out. Someone dremeled off like the Jeep logo. There's just a little bit of the top and bottom of the word that's left on there. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, you know, 2000 bucks, you're not going to get, you know, first world kind of uh, products. But it is awesome to see this thing still going, uh, still being useful. Um, And, you know, obviously, like there's a market out there. So, uh you know, my story that's kind of similar to this, we have, uh, you know, around five acres and we move a lot of dead trees and, and, and wood. And about, I don't know, 10 years ago, no, maybe about seven years ago, um, I bought a secondhand gem. Um, and it was pretty useful for this very, you know, similar kind of use case. Uh, the guy who I bought it from, uh, you know, just across the river in New York, uh, was you know he's a railroad railroad worker but in his spare time he just uh, rehabs gems this was like a 2003 gem um the problem was is it was running on um deep cycle batteries which you can buy at walmart for like 100 bucks each um the problem was that uh if you accidentally left the ignition on which either one of my kids or i did or my wife did or somebody left the ignition on those batteries are dead and gone for forever, um, which is, you know, an environmental like war crime, but also like just kind of a pain in the ass to, to fix. 
So it kind of just sat around for a while because I didn't like I wanted to upgrade it to lithium and, you know, I was kind of monkeying around with like, how am I going to do that? You know, is it safe? Am I going to have to buy a new controller? All these like questions that I really didn't have time to answer. So eventually I was like, and this also at the uh, behest of my wife, get it out of the friggin' driveway. Um, I sold it back to the guy for a, a couple hundred dollars less than I bought it from him for. And, you know, he was happy to take it. He was going to do all the battery work himself and put in uh, new 12 volt batteries. But it begs the question, like this kind of product would be really useful in the U.S. And, and the only people really doing anything like this right now are Polaris who are selling, you know, twelve, twenty thousand dollar what is the cheapest Polaris Ranger or whatever electric? Um so the new one it starts at I want to say twenty five. Jesus. Yeah. Maybe thirty even. You can get a Chevy Bolt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh yeah, just put some big tires on a Chevy Bolt, I guess. Um but you know the like also gems that uh, Polaris make they don't, they're super expensive. Like where, where is the price? Where's the product that it exists between this? Like this doesn't need to go on roads. Like I had no intention of taking out on roads. My kids, um, I, you know, my kids are kind of young. I, I let them drive it. I was in the passenger seat. They loved it. They drove it around the yard. Like where is that product for the U S that you don't have to go to China and, you know, deal with import stuff. Why not? Why doesn't somebody build a product that, you know, can haul some logs maybe, um, maybe not, you know, like pull a stump out of the ground, but like <laughs> at least, you know, put something in the back, move it from one part of the yard to the other part of the yard. Um, kind of like an ATV, but like a little bit more useful and less, you know, rugged, maybe even put a plow on it or something. Um, so, you know, begs the question, like why, why doesn't this product exist in the U S and, and why doesn't somebody, you know, Polaris is obviously there on the high end. Why doesn't somebody come in, you know, 5,000 bucks or something? Yeah, I, I feel like there's such an opportunity here. Um, I mean, the Polaris, uh, the Electric Ranger would like tear this thing to shreds. So I'm not sure that that's a fair comparison. But the gem, that's absolutely in this class, you know. I mean, this thing is like 4,000 watts or so, which is enough for driving around at 20 miles per hour on a grassy field. You know, you're not trying to win a race here. And that's sort of the the class that um, gems are. It's like a neighborhood electric vehicle or a low speed vehicle. And so, um, I mean, it, the only problem with gems is that they're so darn expensive. But I feel like if they could produce that thing in a less cute, like less creature comfort, more like utility vehicle thing, then perhaps they could get that price down because there's there's such a need for that, just like you said. And I think, you know, one of the comments I often see about this truck is people are like, oh, why don't you just get like a cheap 20-year-old F-150? It's like, well, you know, like maybe it costs the same, but I don't want to deal with all the maintenance on one of those things. You have to fill it up with gas. You're, um, you know, it's so heavy that when you drive it around on wet pasture land, you're leaving like big ruts in the ground. Like there are times that a small little vehicle is the better option and that these are the exact cases for that. Yeah. Oh, maybe, maybe that's something we need to come up with here. Just, uh, the, the electric mini truck, the electric, right. The electric. All right. Patent pending. (laughs) Yep. We're calling the trademark office tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, all right. And our last, uh, story of the year, awesomely weird Alibaba, uh, electric vehicle of the week, $8,000 electric boat with submarine capsule. 
Yeah, we got to finish it off with an Alibaba. Uh, and this one was really popular. I think this one had like 100,000 views or something. So a lot of people liked this thing. Um, just some little context. If someone's not familiar, we do this weekly, awesomely weird Alibaba Electric Vehicle of the Week column where we find really fun and funky electric vehicles on China's biggest shopping site. In this case, we found a, uh, I don't know if it's technically a submarine. It's a boat with a submarine capsule. So basically the top half is kind of a catamaran that has like above the water decks, but below the waterline, there's this big capsule that you can sit in. It's got a few seats and it's got these massive windows. So you feel like you're in a submarine. And as you like, you know, toot around on the water, you can just see all the things underneath you without having the danger of like submerging and getting stuck on the floor of the ocean. Without all the danger. <laughs> there you go. So slightly safer because you're connected to something that floats. Some of the yeah. danger, all of the fun. There you go. Uh, I mean, to yeah. me, I don't know if I could get over the fear that I'm going to die in this thing to actually enjoy it, but maybe someone braver than me would have fun in this thing. I mean, it's it's cool that it even exists because it's such a neat little vehicle. I think it's, it's kind of like a... Um, maybe a bit of a, like an impulse thing. Like maybe if you were on vacation, you would go on one of these. I don't know if I would like get one of these as my like go out every weekend on the lake kind of vessel. It's more of a, an experience. So I think that if someone was buying this and they had maybe like a, a sightseeing company or they were in one of these like vacation towns in Florida or something. Um, I mean, imagine having these on spring break. It's like you got a whole bunch of people on the top deck drinking and uh, when you get too dehydrated in the sun, you can go down below and cool off in the little submarine hatch thing. So that, that's where I think I could see these really being useful. But it's such a, a neat and just different boat design. Like, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this in the U.S., which is kind of the summary of most of the things that we feature in the awesomely weird Alibaba Electric Vehicle of the Week um, column. But in this case, it really holds true because it's just... It's so just, I don't know, it draws the eye and it just makes me think like, why the heck did they design that? But I'm glad that they did. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so it looks super fun. Um, it does kind of like strike as a impulse buy. Like it'd be cool to do. Like obviously you, you want to live in an area that has clear water. Like most <laughs> of the lakes I've been to, you can't see two feet in front of your face. So that would be pretty pretty poor purchase in that respect maybe you're a marine biologist and you want to you know check out the manatees in florida that might be a good you know like hey let's just watch this thing eat some grass or something um <laughs> i i imagine my in-laws in florida would love something like this uh because you know they are marine bio or biologists so um that's got to be cool um i can't imagine this thing goes very fast uh because it's you know it's got a little fan motor down there and a bit and of drag that, <laughs> and that does look like the least aerodynamic thing I've ever seen in my life. So, um, and then, you know, as far as danger, like, you know, I, I trust Alibaba to like make small trucks, but, uh, watertight seals, maybe <laughs> not as much. Um, so I guess, you know, your mileage may vary, maybe, buy some aquarium sealant uh and a bilge pump yeah with your with your savings um yeah 
it's a it's a great idea. Like uh, some, you know, I think what we like most about Alibaba is like we there's an opportunity here to just say, hey, well, I have a crazy idea. Let's just build it, and maybe it'll take off. Maybe it won't. This is like a great example of that. Like somebody was like, wouldn't it be cool if you could actually just have a cheap boat with a underground or underwater viewing area? And you know, like in the U.S., people would be like, no. You, you know, that would be way too expensive and pointless. And, you know, but in Alibaba land, like, let's build it. Maybe it'll be a hit and uh, or maybe we'll break even on it or whatever. Um, so it's great to see that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like they have no um, like design constraints or reason not to try it. It's like, well, let's build it. If they don't buy it, then we won't make any more. Right. And it's it's interesting that they can do this stuff. I don't know, like, do they get some funding by the government or do they just have like, you know, an R&D budget that's kind of absurd or, you know, what, what is, how, how, how do we get this in the U.S.? How do we get like these crazy products being made here or, you know, elsewhere in Europe or wherever? Why does it have to only exist in China? Yeah. What is the right amount of government interference? <laughs> right. Exactly. Just throw money at silly things until something, you know, like <laughs> something like this is definitely going to be the next big thing. We just don't know which, which thing. I mean, you know, we, we talk about scooters a lot. Like, can you imagine going back in time 20 years and say, and people saying, oh, you're from the future. What is transportation like? And you'd be like, oh, see that kid scooter over there, that little razor. So every adult's going to be on one of those. It's going to be, you know, bigger and uh, powered and adults are going to be riding those all around town. And, you know, people 20 years ago would just laugh at you, but like, look at us. This is what, this is the world we live in. So. And they're going to be in so much demand. They're going to have to wait months to get one. Right. And, you know, they're going to cost, like they're going to have ones that go 60 miles per hour and they're going to have, you know, ones with seats and they're going to have all kinds of silly things on there. And there's going to be, you know, lit ones. And there's even going to be an electric, like uh, we're looking at on the screen here. Um, there's actually a Razor scooter that looks like a Razor scooter, but it's an electric one. So uh, you never know what the next big thing's going to be. Yeah, but uh, one one thing's for sure. If there's something wild and crazy that is the next big thing, it's probably going to come out of China first. That's true. That's true. Uh, it seems to be the, the wild west of current times. All right, let's move into comments here. Um, Carl in San Diego is very busy today, so let's uh, hit up his first comments. What kind of micromobility do the listeners use? I have a 2004 mountain bike, a recumbent tadpole racing bike. Okay, that's interesting. And just built a bamboo cargo bike. I put Bafang mid-drives on all of them. Wow, all right. he has been busy. Yes, Carl. Uh, we're going to need to see some videos uh, of all these things. And uh, we'll also need to visit you in San Diego next time we're there. Um, do you all think car makers have looked at emissions projection out to 2050 and the limits of lithium supplies and are working on moving to build micromobility or buses and trains instead? Uh, as far as I know, I don't think car makers have thought to 2050, let alone 2025. Um, you know, projection wise, I know Ford was messing around with some micro mobility stuff, but stopped. Um, you know, I think car makers are like, we build cars. That's what our strong suite. And 
you know, we don't really want to kind of move into uh, the line bikes of the world. What do you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, the automotive industry is not my forte. Uh, I think I'm the last person to ask about that, but I, I do get the sense that, you know, five years in the future is considered long-term planning in the auto industry. Oh, that's a good point. Porsche and uh, Mercedes have bought uh, e-bike companies or, or, you know, relabel companies. I think Jeep's got something. Hyundai has a deal with some people. I guess, you know, they, they kind of view them as accessories, car accessories, uh, which is good. Uh, you know, more points of sale are good. Um, so we'll see. And then finally, EVs are becoming less profitable with resource prices rising and soon it will be emissions production limits that prevent them from profiting or even building large EV car. Uh, yeah, GM's 212 kilowatt hour <laughs> Hummer EV Altium will fail. Yes, we we here uh, in this community don't like that. You know, you can build uh, 212 e-bikes with those batteries and just some celebrities riding around uh, with that. That's not fun. Uh, moving on, uh, GIF JP says it's just the investors that are losing out. That's why these guys just disappear. I think we're talking about the bolt thing and start over with the next scam. Uh, what we're gonna have to do some investigation to see where those, uh, initial, uh, uh, folks are and see if they're trying to get another e-bike thing off the ground or something. All right. Uh, smart and final says, uh, I had the original super 73, no power at all going up small incline. Yeah. That was a, uh, kind of a, a drag on the, the initial Super 73s that they were a little underpowered. I know that they, the subsequent Super 73s and the ones they sell now, especially on the high end, are plenty powerful. In fact, they're so powerful that they have to, like, uh, in, in Europe, they can't use all the power. So what do you think about that um, Super 73 power? Yeah, they've they've come a long way. I mean, uh, the original was, was like 2017, 16, something like that. Like it's been many generations since then. So while they originally started with just like a cool looking frame and an image and, uh, you know, a, a lot of bark and no bite, I think they've added significant bite over the years. Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, Extra Hero, this is an interesting question. Have you all considered covering bicycle accessories for people who have already bought an e-bike? So a couple things to think about there. One is like, well, are we just talking bike accessories like new bike seat or new, you know, uh, basket or, you know, or are we talking electric bike things like new batteries or, you know, upgraded motors or whatever? Um, I think that the latter is something that we would probably already cover, but it's a good question. We should have like a e-bike store um, that, you know, we can cover bikes, maybe like a weekly, you know, Hey, here's what's new at the e-bike store. We've got some new baskets and a, you know, upgrade kit and all this other stuff. Uh, we can review stuff there too. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it, it's funny because I mean, e-bikes and pedal bikes are such close cousins that, so many accessories obviously fit both. And so it is interesting to drill down into the things that are specifically for e-bikes. I do try to uh, at least once a year do uh, like a big accessory roundup of all of the uh, best uh, bike and e-bike accessories I've either bought, stolen, or been gifted over the past <laughs> year that I, I test out and, you know, include the ones that actually seem like worthwhile. And, um, so generally it's about once, yeah, sometimes twice a year, um, like every other season, 
but uh, it would be interesting to have sort of like a more uh, organized collection of e-bike specific accessories for sure. All right. CA says I have a, oh, and I think it's pictured perhaps. I have a Pedigo element with over 8,000 miles on it, two years, two batteries, six tires. Well, 8,000 miles on a, on a Pedigo element, which is basically like a BMX uh, e-bike. Um, that's pretty impressive. 8,000 miles. That's more than most people go on e-bikes over their lifetime. So uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for a while I was averaging like uh, three to three and a half thousand miles a year with some pretty good riding. Um, and I was pretty proud of that. But I mean, 8,000 miles a year certainly, or 8,000 miles in two years even still certainly beats me. That's some serious riding. Um, so his next comment is have typos. I wonder if he actually meant to write 80,000 miles. That would be crazy. Uh, <laughs> In two years, uh, that would be crazy unless, you know, hypermiling or something. I don't know. Yeah, but um, I mean, props to you because that's that's awesome. It also just shows, I mean, I imagine you're using this not just for leisure riding, but also for getting around town, that sort of thing, to be able to put on that kind of miles. And it just shows how, you know, if someone commits to an e-bike lifestyle, you can pretty much use this thing as a, a daily driver. Yeah, and, I, you know, we have a Pedigo store locally here, and I got to try out the Element. It's a great bike. Um, I think Juice kind of copied them. They have a similar uh, oh, yeah. rep, uh, rip racer. Rip racer. Um, it's a great, it's a great, uh, great package there, and they're, they're, they sell pretty inexpensively at a you know local Pedigo store. Um, a lot of fun. Even like a, there's like a, an old guy in our town who has one of those things. Um, so good bike to have. I guess the second battery after eight thousand miles uh, makes sense. Fair enough. Yeah, that's a, that's quite a bit. Of, uh, the the big question for all e bike the 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 biggest question is a mid drive better than a rear drive? How much time do we have? Yeah, really, that's an episode in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, so for many for many uses, mid drives are better, but rear drives are also nice. I think the just like the high level is like rear drive. You don't need it. You know, your chain brakes. You're still in a- action. Mid drive, you can use the gears in the back of your bike that are already there, so it's more efficient. Yada yada yada. All right, uh, any anyone have experience with this Go City commuter? I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, me neither. All right, arguably, mid drive is better than hub because motor can benefit from the varied gearing. In most cases, hub drive is used for simplicity or to reduce cost. I think that's good. Hub drives don't chew up your chain and sprockets, which powerful mid drives do. That's true. Uh, and, and obviously CA is a hub drive fan since he's got a um, element. And 8,000 miles on that hub. And 8,000 miles, yeah. All right, let me see if I can find some more comments here. Uh, the e-bike incentive, you can make that a tax rebate in the live lifetime, of, life, lifetime of ownership. Then you don't have to make money selling them. That's a good point. Um, but you know, a free tax. If I'm, you know, if some guy across town or across the border uh, is buying a bike and I can get a free tax rebate on it, then it's kind of the same thing. But uh, good thinking. You know, start thinking that that direction. Acoustic bikes. Uh, yeah, that's that's what we call them. <laughs> Uh, interestingly, e-bikes have lower emissions than pedal bikes. I think you did an article on this, Micah. 
because of the increased calorie intake of the riders. Yeah. I, so this is true, but I try to be careful where I say it because it makes people really angry. Like <laughs> it, it doesn't mean that I'm not correct, but they don't like that I'm correct when I say this. And it basically is because the human body is not as efficient as transforming fuel, which is food into kinetic energy as an electric motor is, which makes sense because the body's not designed to be super efficient. Uh, whereas we have purposely engineered motors to be highly efficient. So if you really want to like break it down into uh, how much energy goes in and out, e-bikes are more efficient, though the difference there is like rounding error compared to the difference between cars and trucks. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of like one of those data points. Like if, you know, you got to move right, even rice or something like that, you got to move it around. It's a lot of energy uh from the sun yada yada yeah all right uh luke will be acoustic bikes and electric bikes next thing you know you'll have those damn punk kids with their punk bikes while i use my acoustic bike for nice classical <laughs> bike riding <laughs> exactly um i think harley in the past is more advertising than actual good product uh yeah you know i know harley from gas gas bikes and i think they're all super loud and annoying so i I'm not a good person, but but I know that that they're making genuine efforts in the electric field, which you can't really say. Uh, you know, the the Japanese uh, motorcycle makers have been very lagger there, so you know, good for Harley, I guess. Absolutely. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, you got to consider terrain. Acoustic bikes are really good for folk who will be riding over bluegrass and country roads. All right, I guess that's another acoustic versus electric uh joke there motorcycles need major redesign to survive electrification the fact that they need 14 to 17 kilowatt uh i think kilowatts to do 100 uh, kilowatt hours to do 100 miles at highway speeds is troubling of course highway speed should be 55 miles per hour too yeah i mean i think uh i think you really need to work on the aerodynamics of motorcycles uh to get you know if you want to ride them on the highway you almost have to make those velo velo bikes, you know, those like uh, containers uh, that are super aerodynamic. If you want to go a hundred miles on, on a motorcycle. Yeah. I mean, until we have like tiny solid state batteries that makes, you know, battery size, a moot point, it's, these are going to be big batteries on wheels to be able to do that kind of distance at, at highway speeds. Motorcycles just are, are not, uh, aerodynamic. It's not as much that the bike isn't aerodynamic, it's that the human body isn't very aerodynamic. Yeah. All right. Uh, Doug Grinsberg says, wondering if Gogoro scooters, swappable batteries will come to the U.S. I, like I, I don't see it happening anytime soon and I've got a pretty good like finger on the pulse of Gogoro I like to think. Um, just because they are so heavily focused on Asia right now. I could see it in you know, the, the more distant future, but I don't think the next two or th maybe three, I don't think the next two years, I would say, we'll see any progress in the U.S. because there's just so much bigger fish to fry in the Asian markets where two-wheelers are, uh, in many countries, more common than cars. Right. And, and you know, there's only a few places in the U.S. where where you have the kind of density where, you know, these make a ton of sense. You know, I could see them in New York. They kind of have like, 
uh, the density. I guess LA sort of. Not, I mean, not really because they're yeah, they're not very dense. Uh, places like San Francisco make sense. You know, maybe not. Maybe it's Kimco or maybe it's uh, you know another company with their with their own swappable batteries. But um, be nice to have. But I, I agree. I, I don't think they're. U.S. is a high priority for anybody. Uh, Carl in San Diego doesn't like that uh, belt drive. I was on the uh, rivet. Yeah, kind of frumpy. I like how it was. I mean, I guess this is what he doesn't like, but I like how it was um, internal. Like you don't have to worry about you know catching your toe and the the sprockets back there. Yeah, it's also a uh, pretty significant reduction. So you got that like giant sprocket on the rear so you know it's a it's a lot of hardware you're looking at there but i do think it's fairly nicely contained at least and um bjorn's also not a fan of the design um <laughs> looks like it's made in the 1930s which i don't think i've seen a 30s bike that looks like that um what about level three charging uh, is that something that could make it there is it something that's not needed what are your thoughts there um, I mean, it's only a four kilowatt hour battery, so I feel like level three charging would like fry. I mean, I know you can do lower power, but I don't, I don't think you necessarily need it because this isn't designed for that kind of long range with a decent wall charger. You know, you can get, uh, you know, 50% of your, your charge back in like an hour and a half or two hours. So level three would be nice, but on a commuter bike like this. I mean, it's like a $7,000 bike. I don't see them focusing on level three charging. All right. I think that's pretty much it for the comments. Uh, one, one last one, it, uh, why, uh, why you can't trust these. And Carl says, agree. That's why Micah buys these. So we don't have to, and that's right. <laughs> yeah. I have put my skin in the game more times than I probably should have, but it's a service that I enjoy performing. <laughs> And we get great stories out of them. So there you go. Uh, you know, you got to give the people what they want. Yeah. So uh, this is our last podcast for the year. We'll be back in another two weeks. And we want to thank you guys for tuning in. This is, I think, our year anniversary as well, because our first episode was a rundown of all the 2021 biggest stories. So thank you to everyone who's been with us for the last year. And we look forward to a whole pile of new and interesting stories to cover in 2023.